is the Rebel Author Podcast, where we talk about books, business, and occasionally bad words. Hello, Rebels, and welcome to episode 158 of the Rebel Author Podcast. Today, I'm talking to Shane Miller all about how to outline your novel and write fast. But first to last week's question, which was, would you ever collaborate, and if so, in what way? Eden Collier said, I would love to collab with someone because while I know some things about being an author and storytelling, to quote Oscar Wilde, I'm not young enough to know everything, especially about it. I love, I love that. Jackson, Jackson Hollingsworth said, great episode. I'd love to collaborate on an anthology with someone I trusted. For actually co-writing a story, I think I'd have to trust that person a lot and know they wouldn't bail partway through. As long as that trust is there, I think it'd be a really fun project. Author Lena M. Johnson said on Instagram, excited to listen to this episode. I had a poor experience of collaborating on a series of anthologies. We managed to get them out, but it was like pulling teeth. Always make sure everyone has access to the passwords. I think that's great advice. Okay, so this week's question is, what and when was the last bit of self-care you did? So, I have been thinking a lot about self-care recently, what it looks like, what it feels like, what it manifests like, and how acutely different it is uh, for different people. And uh, so I am asking you because I think it is really important. Uh, This summer was pretty brutal for quite a lot of people. And uh, I know a lot of friends of mine are in burnout. So that is why I'm asking you this question. especially as I have been trying very hard to manage my energy levels. So I don't know if I've said this on the podcast, but I uh, train quite heavily uh, at boot camp uh, four to five times a week. I'm trying for five every week, sometimes a bit too exhausted, so I only make it four, but they are pretty intense sessions. And uh, I am finding that the days that I go, I tend to write more in the afternoon than I wrote in the morning, which is very interesting to me because it's an expenditure of energy, uh, but it's not uh, uh, it's not affecting my creative energy. If anything, it's a positive impact. And I'm also trying to do things like understand when I, for example, today, for example, it is Wednesday the 28th of September, I'm recording this a day early, because I went to write this morning and I couldn't, because I was so tired. Um, And so instead of doing the podcast tomorrow, um, or my admin tomorrow, I have flipped the day around and I'm doing it today. And okay, yes, it's still about work, but it felt like a self-care thing to me. Um, And also, you know, things like reading a book for fun. I know that we're all authors and we all need to uh, read for work and read in our genre and all the rest of it. But when was the last time you just picked up a book for fun? So anyway, there you have it. My question this week, what and when was the last bit of self-care you did? All right, the book recommendation of the week this week is A Glasgow Kiss by Sophie Gravier. Uh, and this was recommended to me by Scott Williamson. And uh, it's set in Glasgow. And uh, it, he basically challenged me to open the look inside, read one page and not auto click by, which um, I failed miserably. <laughs> I did one click by uh, and I devoured it in two sittings, I think it was. It was very, very readable. It is hilarious. Um, 
uh, I had some issues with it, but you know, I won't, you know, it, it was a, a great fun read. If you are looking for something that will make you cry with laughter, which this made me do, then I highly recommend it. Um, it is sort of like a Bridget Jones meets um, 50 Shades of Terrible Dating. <laughs> It isn't romance, despite the cover looking like a romance uh, novel. There is lots of romance in it, but it is not a romance novel. It's more of like a chick flick, like Bridget Jones style book, if that makes sense. Anyway, total fun. Laugh out loud hilarity. Highly recommend. Um, Okay, so in personal news... I had a terrible feeling that if I started down the rabbit hole of writing this next fiction book, the one that's going under the pen name, that I would then tunnel vision and not do anything other than the book, which inevitably I have done. And so I think I started 12 days ago. I started on the 16th. It's now the 28th. I've done 46,000 words and I'm trying to aim to finish in nine days time, which would be the 7th of October. The reason that I set such a tight turnaround is that um, I want two weeks to do a first initial edit before the October school half term. So what I'm doing now is working to school term times because trying to work two quarters wasn't really functioning very well for our family and now that I have uh, streamlined my processes better and have a system that's actually working um, I maybe I feel like maybe I need to do a longer thing on this or maybe I'll do it on Patreon I don't know but there's been so many changes because of coaching Um, and so many different ways of looking at how I schedule my time and the fact that, yes, I can write a book very quickly now, but I also need a long period of time before that, thinking, intellecting, outlining, re-outlining. So, like, for example, I rewrote the outline three times for this book before I started. Um, And so, yes, okay, that's great. I'm going to get this book done in three weeks, but also it has taken me a really long fucking time to get here. So, you know, I'm trying to look at, well, okay, if that's the case and I can write a book in each half term, then when do I do the prep time for the next book? So the book that I'm going to be doing in the the school term after the end of October, so November and December, I haven't done any prep yet. And that's because I've tunnel visioned and also because I front loaded a lot of admin work at the beginning of this school term. So that did take up a good couple of weeks of this term, which didn't really help me. Um, So perhaps it will be easier going forward. But anyway, as you can see, I'm still in a huge state of flux and state of trying to uh, refine this experiment. And that's that's how I'm looking at it, at least for the school year anyway, is that this is an experiment and we're going to see if it works, you know, because I I wanted to get the audio book done this term as well. And I haven't done that yet. I may still be able to do that. especially when I then go into editing, but I'm really not sure. And it didn't, I think if I hadn't have run out of podcasts, because I sort of did loads before the summer holidays, so that um, the summer was covered whilst we were away. Um, And so inevitably, I've had to work a lot of evenings doing that rather than editing the audiobook. And apparently, I don't know if this is true for any of you guys, but there's only 24 hours in a day. I mean, I don't know if any of you guys realise that, but apparently that's news to me. (laughs) And I need to sleep like at least seven and a half of them. So like, whoa, apparently I don't have enough time in the day. Um, Of course, I am jesting. But yeah, no, so this is still an experiment and I haven't quite got it right yet, but I am seeing big changes and I just I feel 
look I mean I always feel like I'm on crack and high as a kite when I am drafting because it's my favorite thing to do and it's just so hard and fast and I just love this this part of the process but yes I don't know I have not got this pinned down yet it's not quite working for how I want it to because I need to get the other things done around it and uh you know tunnel visioning visioning is great until it's not when you have other shit that needs doing so yes I will continue to uh update you on this uh, and suffice to say <laughs> I still want to get the audiobook done before the half term uh, I wanted to get it done before the end of this month but we're now only two days away from that so it doesn't look like that's gonna happen does it Okay, so Rebel of the Week this week is a return to Eden's Nan. I do love this. The last one tickled me absolutely pink, so I can't wait to see what Eden's Nan did this time. Okay, so the story goes. So this is another story from my nanny's life, which shows her flair for the rebellious. For most of her adult life, she worked as a nurse in the in and around the Penzance, in and, sorry, in and around Penzance at the west of Cornwall. One day in the 70s, she gets a call from the hospital in the middle of the night saying there's rather a rather distressed man who was planning to end his own life. Not the funniest setup in the world, but bear with. Anyway, she goes over to this man's house and they end up chatting and she finds out that he's taken a load of sleeping pills and is intending to drink a big bottle of rum. She asks to use his phone to make a quick call. Then... <laughs> chops his arm <laughs> to make him try <laughs> your man is such a fucking legend oh my goodness me and then karate chops his arm <laughs> I can't get past it I can't get past it I'm sorry I'm trying so hard not to sound like a mouse okay <laughs> Then karate chops his arm to make him drop the bottle, shoves him into his room and locks the door. Oh my God. This, is, this is such poor taste of my part laughing, I do apologise. Not one to let a good bottle of rum go to waste. No! Oh my God. This is the best story ever. She calls She calls my granddad to help tell him she'll be home late and then invites mates over <laughs> and proceeds to get busted on the run all while the man is fast asleep <laughs> I can't wait. The next morning, she got up with a monster hangover, unlocked the door to the man's room, <sighs> told him sternly not to do it again, taught us home and slept the rest of the day. <laughs> oh, my God. Oh, oh, I can't breathe. I've got stitch. Eden, I'm literally, I, I, I'm not, I won't lie. I literally have tears rolling down my face. This is the funniest story. Okay, I took a hot second to uh, calm myself down before I continued recording because I re-listened and re I nearly deleted all of this because <laughs> I think this is the worst I've ever read a story because I was laughing so hard. So I, I, I but I'm going to leave it because... 
You know, that is raw, pure me reading this for the first time. So I do love to give you my live reactions. Oh my goodness, seriously, tickled me pink. And I do feel like we need a series of Nan stories. So if anybody else has a rebellious Nan, please, please email me the stories. Or alternatively, if you yourself are a cheeky rebel, then please do send in your story. They can be any kind of rebellion, something big, something small, or something in between. It could be your Nan, it could be a pet, it could be a spouse, a brother, a sister, a sibling, it could be, it could be any kind of rebellion. You can email your rebel story to Becca over on rebelauthorpodcast at gmail.com. Okay, thank you and welcome to two new patrons, Barbara Campbell and Tara Brinkley. I really, really appreciate the support and of course I am in deep gratitude to all of my existing patrons as well. Your support means everything. Not only does it help to run the show, it helps to pay for my time. And, you know, we have an amazing community as well that is supportive and loving and creates big, warm, cozy hug feelings, even though I'm obviously dead on the inside, of course. If you would like to get early access to all of the episodes, as well as bonus content and Q&A sessions, Poison and Prose, we're watching a movie night all together next month. Uh, And if you join at certain levels, you also get the Rebel Masterclasses, then you can do so from as little as $2 a month by visiting patreon.com forward slash Sasha Black. This episode is sponsored by Pro Writing Aid. And so rather than me tell you all about Pro Writing Aid, I'm going to let Kimberly Grimes, who is a young adult speculative fiction author, Uh, And you can find her over on Instagram at kgrimes.writes, and I'll include those links in the show notes. Um, And I'm going to let her tell you all about it. Uh, Kimberly is also one of the authors in the Rebel Author Anthology, and she has some of her own books on sale as well. So do make sure you go and check her out. I've had pro writing aid for years now and frequently use the web editor program to check what I've written in my emails and newsletters. When checking my stories, either directly in Microsoft Word through the add-in feature or in the web editor on the ProWritingAid website, ProWritingAid is my go-to resource for grammar and spelling checks. And as much as I love the grammar and spelling checks, that's only half of what their editing software can do. Some of my favorite tools ProWritingAid offers are the overused words, echo words, and sentence length features. I've recommended ProWritingAid to many of my author friends, as well as many of my friends and family who are not writers. Not only is this program a must-have, but it's also a sanity saver. Don't forget, you can get 20% off ProWritingAid software by using my special link. So I will leave that in the show notes. All right, enough from me. Let's get on with the episode. Hello, and welcome to the Rebel Author Podcast. Today, I'm joined by Shane Miller. Shane is a fictionary certified story coach and the author of the Write Better Fiction Craft Guides. He is also the author of the Myth and Magic Urban Fantasy Thriller series, writing as S.W. Miller. Shane holds a BA in journalism and is a member of the Alliance of Independent Authors. He lives in Buckinghamshire, England. He's taken way too many writing courses to count and enjoys reading as much as possible. Shane is obsessed with five things, the writing craft, mythology, personal development, food, and martial arts movies. Hello and welcome. Hello, thanks for having me. 
You are welcome. It's actually welcome back because yes, you indeed. were on the show before, weren't you? You were on episode 134 back in April of this year. So rather than telling everyone your journey, which I'm pretty sure we did on that episode, would you like to tell everyone what you've been up to since April? Yes, certainly. I've been really busy since April. I have published, I think, four books in my Write Better Fiction craft series. I got another novel out. I've had a short story out for a new series that I'm working on, and my fifth uh, Write Better Fiction book will be out at the end of this month, which is Amazing. September as we record this. So you've now written how many books and published how many books this year? Uh, eight and then nine when this new one comes out. Unbelievable. So you're going to keep that pace up next year? No. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's way too hard. Like, I'm glad I did it because I've got a, a small backlist I can work with now, and that's fantastic. But rapid release is um it is tough and i'm still working a day job as well so yeah it's hard and no i won't be carrying on it's impossible i think i think it's hard as well like because the thing with rapid release is you have to be pouring money into advertising and if you're not pouring money into ads it's very hard to get traction regardless of like what you do unless you have time between your launches and you've got time to do the donkey work yourself yeah Um, exactly But yeah, I mean, I don't do rapid release for a reason because it is just 50 shades of savage, basically. Um, (laughs) But we are here to talk about plotting. And I'm also going to ask you about, you know, how the fuck you wrote so many books (laughs) in a year um, and published them all, given that you also have a full time job. But we're going to start with the plotting. So before we dive into it, Let's first address those authors, which I know you do in the book, um, who don't like plotting. What is your, because everybody's got a stance on it, everybody. So what is your stance on plotting versus uh, writing into the dark? Uh, The whole plotting versus writing into the dark thing, if I'm going to be really frank, is total bullshit. I do not um, agree with it at all, despite the fact that I've written a book on plotting. So I see it that we're all sat on this spectrum of plotting and discovery writing. And what that means is, yes, I'm a plotter. I will sit down and I will do my um, key beat outline before I start. I'll start drafting. I'll reach a point in the draft where something happens, my characters go rogue and the plot goes out the window. I end up discovery writing parts, going back and adding in information I need to. Um, And as for the whole, you know, plotting is superior because you have a structure and discovery writing is not a valid way to write. That is totally wrong. Um, If you're a discovery writer, don't let anyone tell you that it's a bad thing to do. It just means that you'll be doing the process in reverse. So rather than outlining first, you'll likely sit down, write your draft, tell yourself the story, and then kind of go back and reverse engineer an outline afterwards. So that's the other thing about discovery writing. I think eventually you do have to put some kind of structure into your story anyway. You're just doing it after you've written rather than before and I would also say that a lot of people say oh plotting makes things quicker and it does for certain people but I've noticed that what a lot of plotters do is that they leave out the time they spend plotting before they actually write so they'll say well I wrote my draft in you know eight days yeah you did but you also spent two weeks prior to that plotting which is what again a discovery writer does in reverse so short answer is it's bullshit I don't actually think plotting versus discovery writing exists it's just divisive 
and it creates a lot of um, tension in the author community that doesn't actually need to be there. Yeah, I completely agree. I um, I think for months and months and months and months and sometimes years and years and years about my story. And then mm. I will probably spend an afternoon doing some post-it notes and then I will get really busy with other stuff. And then I'll spend another couple of hours going, I fucking hate that outline. And then yeah. redoing all of the post-its. <laughs> And then that might happen again. This last book, it's happened three times. Three times I've significantly changed the book. The yeah. the theme hasn't changed, but a lot of the major plot points have changed. Um, and kind of some of the location and setting, even though it's in the same world, has, has changed. Um, and then, uh, so I, I do that. And then, um, but, but this is an interesting thing, right? So because even though I can get the book out very quickly, um, it, it also depends. So for this book, I didn't spend years and years and years thinking about it. I kind of had a notional concept, but unlike the book I wrote in the summer, which I wrote very quickly, I had spent years thinking about that. This one, I've hardly spent any time. But what's happened, because I haven't done my normal process, is that I ground to a halt this week. Yeah. Yeah. And what that shows is I still need to do the thinking. So that's what I did. I took, yes, well, I did a little bit of writing yesterday and then ground to a halt and then had to spend the rest of the day thinking and um, doing some things that helped me get unstuck, which I know helped me get unstuck. All hail Ellie for making me know these things. <laughs> Seriously, I literally would die without her. Um, and I redid my outline, but I can only see the next 20K. So I'm going to smash out the next 20K. And when I get to, when I, when yeah. I inevitably grind to a halt again in four days time, I will have to do this process again. But ultimately it doesn't really fucking matter. What matters is that you get to the end of the book. So whatever process works best for you, that is the process you should be following. And I, I think, and I'm sure you agree that sometimes we can all get a little bit stuck hearing very loud voices telling us that it, we should do it one way or whatever and actually it's all nonsense we just need to do it the way that we need to do it to get the book done yeah um, you're completely right and actually you raised a good I love point it when you say about... that <laughs> oh dear significance straight <laughs> drink um no but seriously you raised a good point about process so i think a lot of people and this is probably why people are scared to plot if they've not tried it before they you'll spend a long time searching for the right to process so someone will tell you that you have to follow save the cat or you have to follow the snowflake method, or you have to do it this way. And you don't. You know, this, this the method that I've put across for plotting is basically an amalgamation of everything that I've learned from loads of different processes. It works for me, and you can take things that work for me, they might work for you, and you'll end up coming up with your own process anyway. I mean, we've all heard Sasha talk before about chaos drafting, I think you call it now, right? Yeah. Um, which is fantastic. You know, that works for you. So you're not going to follow a rigid definitely doing save the cat beats type of thing it's going to be more organic based on what works for you and i think we all find that over time especially if you're a new writer don't try and find your process straight away or rather don't expect to find your process mm. straight away because it's it's not going to happen you need to have produced multiple books and internalized story structure before you can really um use it i think yeah, and I think it also depends on the book. H.B. Line talks about this quite a lot, that some books are just written differently. And that is the case for this book. I've never written a book this way. And for the first time ever, this book has been written linearly. I've never written a book linearly, ever. Yeah. And and I think it's because I'm following a particular um, plot structure, which I don't normally do. But because of that, 
I, instead of coming at the story as a helicopter, which is what I normally do, I look down on it and try and piece the puzzle pieces in, which is my chaos draft. I'm coming at it from the start line and following a path all the way to the end. Um, and, and isn't it interesting, as you were talking, it just made me realize that I think that is why I struggle or have previously struggled to stick to plot structures like Save the Cat or whatever. I've never been able to do that. I've done it naturally because I've internalized story structure, but I can't overlay my plot onto um, the, the story structure until afterwards. Yeah. So like I, in one of the books, I can't remember, one of the nonfiction books, I um, happened, it must've been the last one actually. I went to the midpoint, the literal midpoint or the mid chapter it was uh, in the last book I wrote. And it literally was the midpoint. Like it was like the false, false high or false low, whatever it was. And I was like, oh my God, how did I do that? But it's obviously because I've internalized story structure, but I didn't do that by plotting the plot onto a story structure before I started. I just wrote the story in notes and then, you know, built built it. Um, and so that's so interesting. I really, yeah, that's a really, um, what's the word? Wise comment. <laughs> oh, wow. That is yeah, the first time anyone has ever called me wise. <laughs> oh, I was um... looking for a different word. I couldn't think of one. It's late. And for listeners, I swear I'm not being on Shane. Like, we are good friends. It's fine. <laughs> right. Are you we, use... Are we? Well, competitive friends. Where's your competition again? <laughs> Five. Thank you very much. Yeah. <laughs> uh, everyone drink. Right. Okay. To your, to your, to your book. So in your book, you talk about nine story beats to plot. Can you give an overview for listeners of what those beats are and why you use those ones specifically? Yeah, sure can. So like I've kind of hinted at already, I'm not really teaching anything new. The, the plot structure you'll find in my book is a basic three-act structure that I've tried to break down in a way that makes it easy to understand because I'm sure we've all read those craft books where um, they're overcomplicated, I think, in the way that plot are described so broadly speaking you divide your book into three acts the first 25 percent of your book is the everyday world where your protagonist is going about their normal life in a flawed way so they will have something wrong with them in a sense that needs to be fixed by the end of the novel and the first three beats fall in that everyday world so oh my god got... i'm sorry i'm sorry <laughs> i'm listening to everything that you're saying and you're and i'm just like oh my god Shane! I ground to a halt. I've literally come to the end of Act One. Oh my God, this is amazing. This is amazing. Carry on talking. <laughs> and guess what? The awesome. next 20K is the mid the mid 20K. Anyway, carry on. Sorry. There we go. No, no. you're all right. Brilliant. So uh, beat one then, which is the first beat in the everyday world, is the invisible question. And this is where I like to open the first line of a novel with a statement that creates a question in the reader's mind that they can only answer by reading on. A really simple but shitty example of this, because it is late and I can't think of one, is something like the phone rang. So the reader is instantly going to want to know who's on the other end of the phone, for example. That'll make them read on. B2 is the grenade, which is what I like to call the inciting incident, because inciting incident has never really felt big enough for me. Uh, the grenade is where you completely destroy your protagonist's everyday world by pulling the pin on a life-changing event and crucially showing how they react to that event um, afterwards because we want our protagonist to be relatable. And then the final beat in Act 1 is the impossible choice. This is where you present your protagonist with an opportunity to leave the everyday world. Usually that's another character doing that. The protagonist struggles with what to do 
And then they decide to step into act two, which is the strange world, or at least that's what I call it. And in the strange world, the protagonist is basically out of their depth. They're struggling to come to terms with what happened at the grenade and they're having obstacles thrown at them left, right and center. In act two, we've got the distant villain, which is beat four. This is where essentially you remind your protagonist of the antagonist power, show their thoughts spiraling out of control because they don't want to deal with that antagonistic force and then show their reaction to that reminder that you've just given them. And then we've got beat five, which Sasha's kind of already mentioned. This is the game changing midpoint. It's where all the stakes get upped and your protagonist plans change. You can do this by threatening failure, revealing a shocking plot twist or giving them a dose of sobering truth. And uh, the key point about this is that the protagonist will become active from this point on. So they will start actively trying to solve their issues from the midpoint rather than just kind of reacting to what's happening to them. Uh, the beat six, which is the last one in the strange world of act two, that's the near villain. So the antagonist is getting ever closer to achieving their goal, which you can show by using a point of view switch. If you want to do a, a scene from your antagonist's point of view, for example, showing them um, getting close to their goal, you can deliver a message to the protagonist through another character. So a henchman or something, if you're writing a thriller, or you can have a direct approach from the antagonist, which will show that they are um, achieving their plan. And by that, I mean, they will do something to the protagonist and have some on-page time with the protagonist. And then finally, act three, we've got the balance world. Beat seven is the tragedy, which is like the all is lost moment. So you cause the protagonist's lowest moment by creating some kind of disaster that breaks the protagonist and shows their turmoil. So if we're thinking thrillers, that could be the death of a mentor and fantasy as well. If it's romance, this could be the breakdown or the seeming breakdown of the relationship before they kind of get back on track afterwards. And then B8, we've got the showdown where your protagonist triumphs through going through a series of stages to defeat the antagonist. I like to call these preparation, where they prepare for that final showdown. They always have a moment of um, pre-showdown jitters where they're kind of nervous. They don't think they're going to be able to achieve whatever their goal is. The first attack where they try and beat the antagonist, followed by a reversal of fortune where the antagonist does something unexpected that causes the protagonist to almost fail. This is the point that the protagonist learns that they are no longer flawed, or at least they learn what they need to do to fix their flaw, which leads them to victory. And then you can show a final reaction. And then the last thing is beat nine, which most people call the resolution, but I think it's stronger to call it the protagonist mirror. And this is where I like to show the reader how much the protagonist has changed by creating contrast. So if, for example, in the first scene, you show your character's flaw as a fear of conflict, in the last scene, you want to show your protagonist leaning into conflict because they've defeated that flaw, essentially. So yeah, it's nothing new. You know, this has been around practically since the dawn of time, but I just find that's the easiest way for me to internalize it and explain it to other people. Yeah, and rather than rewinding the episode, just go buy the book and then you'll have that full list yeah. and stacks more detail to go with it. Um, do that. Okay, so let's talk about plotting now and some of the things that happen whilst we're plotting. So mm. what do you do when the inevitable happens and partway through writing your story, it changes? You mentioned that that can happen to you. Yep. 
what like what do you do what can plotters do do they stop and panic do they just stop writing do they have to restart the whole book do they you know what what should they do you quit no you don't quit (laughs) we never quit (laughs) (laughs) we never ever quit do not do that no so it really depends on the type of person that you are but I find that when I get stuck it will usually be around the middle because that second act is long it's like a good half of your novel basically and it can be a struggle to to fill it with things and I think when I've been working with editing clients this is usually the spot where they get stuck as well so I think the main thing to do is not to sit staring at your computer screen waiting for the cursor to magically type words for you because that is not going to happen and it's not very good for your blood pressure either <laughs> as I found so um yeah first thing take a break and that could mean a day it could mean a week it depends how stuck you are and then go and engage in an activity that gets you unstuck like Sasha was saying at the start of the episode she knows she has certain things that will get her unstuck she knows how to do those so for me that would involve something like watching a great movie um, reading a great book anything that's gonna restart that creative fire in you and get you thinking about the next step on your journey and then also the best thing is if you've outlined and you find that a plot point has changed your outline completely that's absolutely fine best thing to remember is that the outline is not the finished product and I work with so many people that they've set an outline down and because they've written it they think it's set in stone and they have to stick to it they won't deviate from the outline it's okay to do that though and then what you should do is just carry on writing as if you'd always intended to write the thing that's changed then when you finish your draft or finish the next section or however you write you can go back and kind of seed in the things that have changed because of because of that thing that threw you out of your plot. But I think the first thing definitely is take a break. And I'm so guilty of this. I I do sit staring at the screen and, you know, nearly giving myself an aneurysm because I'm gritting my teeth so hard trying to work out what's right next. It, it's not helpful. So do what I say and not what I do. Don't you have have communication? Yeah. Isn't like talking through the plot, probably like the solution to most of your issues most of the time. (laughs) It is. And it, takes me a long time to realize that and every time that happens every time it happens yeah every time and every time it is a conversation that gets me unstuck after I've done all the breaks and things like that yeah but I am resistant to having that conversation it's funny isn't it why do we do that though (laughs) why do we resist the one thing that we know that we need to do my newsletter this week is literally about that like like I think the subject line is something like are you a masochist writer and it is literally (laughs) talking about the fact that I like yeah literally all of us are all fucking masochists because we just don't do the thing we just sit in this pain dwelling and fucking whining because instead of just doing the one thing that we know that we should be doing and it's so interesting so um I, uh, the reason that I write my outline on post-it notes is because they can be pulled off and moved and changed because I really, really, really hate (laughs) when you've written like this beautifully neat, like outline and then, and then it all goes to shit and then you have to rewrite the whole thing. So that's literally why I do post-its because I I don't feel so bad about pulling them off. And some of the other things, uh, that you picked up, like, um, uh, often that I try resist myself so so some of the ways that I get unstuck I just wanted just in case listeners want some more tips or ideas um I go and watch a a movie or a tv show that is about the trope that I'm writing about 
That's one thing that I do or that it's in the genre. So you sort of mentioned that um, before I started on this, I watched four back to back movies that are this I'm being very careful because I'm writing something <laughs> secret that are this thing that I'm doing that I, I yeah. All of the words. I I watched four of them back to back. That helped me. And then um, the other thing that I did, and I absolutely fucking hate that this is the case, but I sit in my office on the floor in silence and it is torture. It is fucking torture. But I do it. And I and guess what? The minute I just I just it's quiet, there's no interruptions, all of a sudden the ideas start flowing. And the other thing that I do, I'm very, very, very visual. And um this is something I really underestimate just quite how visual I am but like for example I can't start until I can ha- I have a picture like a fan cast picture. The, did the color coded bookcase not give away that you are extremely visual? Did, did the top five communication not give away the fact that you need to talk it out? <laughs> wow, I think we call this touche, darling. Yeah, okay. um, yeah, uh, yeah, apparently it didn't. It wasn't a big enough fucking clue. Uh, yeah, so I have to see the character, but... Like sometimes, say like, for example, one of my other books, I had to draw a map partway through because I couldn't see the journey they were going on. I had to be able to see the route Mm. in order to then be able to like put obstacles on that route and stuff. So like, yeah. And, and, you know, that's not to say that everybody's visual, but like, these are just ideas and and ways, you know, also get your fucking strengths done because (laughs) apparently all the answers are there. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, they really that are. Is so annoying. <laughs> like the fact, yep. yeah, anyway. Um, <laughs> okay, so what do you think are the biggest mistakes writers make when approaching outlining and plotting and how can they resolve them? Yeah, I think one of the biggest things is when it comes to character, which I know the book is specifically about plot beats, but part of plotting is designing your your characters as well. And I think what happens is, I was guilty of it too. I went to Google when I first started writing and I was like, character questionnaire. How do I how do I design uh, a character? Yeah, yeah, don't do that. So you'll end up with these hundred page questionnaires about like who is your, you know, who's your protagonist, third grade teacher's dog, and what's their name, and all this random crap that you're never gonna need for your book. So I think and we can get overwhelmed by that, understandably. So I think the best thing to do is keep character creation really simple. And I like to do this by just assigning the character five things. So that is a wound to begin with. That is an event that has injured them in the past, either physically, mentally, or emotionally. That wound turns into a scar, which becomes their flaw. And this is their flawed belief about themselves or the world. Um, Then you give them a want. This is the thing that they're pursuing throughout the novel externally. So in a heist, it would be a valuable painting, for example. Then you give them a need which is the internal goal they're pursuing. We spoke earlier about shifting a protagonist who's afraid of conflict at the start to leaning into conflict at the end. That's that's a character arc, essentially. And then give them something unique. So my favourite example of this is Katniss Everdeen in The Hunger Games. She has the bow and arrow, and yes, there are other characters who use a bow and arrow, but she is arguably one of the most proficient characters. It's a skill that's unique to her. There's loads of it, like the mocking J-pin is unique to her, all of those things. So if you can give your characters those five things, 
you don't need to know anything else to actually start writing. You can keep it really simple. And the good thing about working out your character's flaw and where you want them to end up at the end of the novel ahead of time is that the plot events that you end up throwing at them will be specifically engineered to deal with that flaw rather than just trying to force your character into your plot. So I think that's the biggest mistake, filling out way too much information about your characters too early, one that will never make it into the book, and two, that you will be tempted to put in the book as massive info dumps, which yeah. nobody wants to read. <laughs> yeah, I love that. I um, I don't necessarily do all of the same things. I I um, I don't remember, don't know if you remember uh, Damon Swade's ver Verbalize. Yeah. Like, yeah. So I really like that. I really like yeah. having that verb about them because the the thesaurus that uh, he created has loads of other words around it. So I often pull out a few and put those descriptive words around them. And, and, and I don't necessarily do anything with it other than hold that information in my brain. But mm. actually, a character is action. And knowing the types of actions that they would take helps me to shape who they are. So that's the only, that's the only, the, the, there's two things that I do that you didn't mention. So that was one of them. And the other one that I do is I, I like to know what they sound like. Mm -hmm. So like, what is their, their, how even like, how would they narrate a scene versus how would another character narrate the scene? And that's not necessarily something I would know before sometimes it's very very clear and very very obvious to me before I start and sometimes that comes to me as I go through so like the book I'm writing now is dual point of view and one of the characters is incredibly clear to me how they speak and the other one like you could <laughs> be mistaken you could be mistaken <laughs> for thinking it's two different characters because like I haven't quite married down their voice and so there's a couple oh, yeah. of characters that are like this, this but yeah it's like but, but that's fine that's the purpose of a shitty first chaotic draft right exactly. to find these things yeah. so yeah. yeah i love that so much okay and speaking about drafting and and mm. writing yes you write fucking fast so i mean i don't think there's any denying how fast you write given that you've released 11 million books this year <laughs> so let's let's move on to that because you've also written a book about how to write fast. So yes. what what is the secret? What what are the pillars of preparation? I mean, I can tell you what how I write quickly now, thanks to Ellie, all hail strengths. Yeah. But yeah, yeah. um yeah, talk talk to me about how you write fast. What are the pillars of preparation that you think have the biggest effect on your ability to write quickly? Yeah, so I think this comes down to three kind of major um areas. And the first thing is the mindset that you approach writing with, which I think we're going to come on to in a minute anyway. Um, but you have to get your headspace right first. There's no, I mean, yeah, there's an argument for the whole sit your ass in the chair and do the thing. And obviously you do have to do that to get the work done. I but think it's such times, bullshit though. So do I. Yeah, that, the whole, you have to sit down and do it, I agree. But you don't have to force yourself to do it when you're really not there because it's not, again, you're just going to end up sitting there staring at the screen. You'll beat yourself up. You'll be like, yep. I'm such a shit writer. I'm yep. not. I'm not even a real writer because I can't write anything. So there's no point sitting there and doing that because you'll just end up quitting after about two hours anyway, and maybe even quit writing full stop. And we don't want anyone to do that. So get your headspace right first. And when I say that, the main thing is discovering the why of behind you write, which again, I think we're going to go on to later. Um, and then the kind of second area I would say is getting your workspace the way you want it. And what I mean by that is, 
choose a place where you can write that you're actually comfortable writing. Um, you know, I'm sure we've all tried to write in uncomfortable spaces before and it's not, <laughs> it's not the easiest thing to do. Uh, optimizing that workspace. So removing distractions, for example, the wall in front of me is completely blank because I know that if I have something visual up there, I'm visual like you. So I will be intensely distracted. I can't look at anything. If um, I want to write fast, I shut my window blind so yeah. I can't see the road so because yeah. all I do is I look and there's no one fucking interesting out there. It's no. like the cat, the local cat or whatever, you know. So I have to shut the blind so that I can't see cars coming past or people walking past the window. Yeah, there's nothing, you know, it's not even interesting. It's no. just that my squirrel brain is like, oh, something yeah. to look at yeah Let's look at that. <laughs> that isn't the hard work we're doing <laughs> <laughs> yes exactly yeah. and then uh, the final kind of area is around the writing itself so we're talking about fast ways to generate ideas we've already covered some of the things like don't sit stewing take breaks go for a walk whatever um preparing in terms of doing those quick character outlines doing the basic key beats for plot if you're just starting out and maybe thinking about some of your settings and how they can be emotionally resonant for your characters and how you're going to um, filter those settings through your character's lens, as it were. And then the final thing in terms of producting writing, productive writing sessions, well, you know, say that five times faster, is um, minimizing distractions in terms of I do not write with my phone in the room because again I know that if my phone is in the room I'm looking at that phone and I'm not doing what I'm supposed to be doing so they're kind of the three broad areas that I would say mindset workspace and your actual process in terms of preparation for your writing session have you you know do you have a ritual at the start do you always brew a cup of coffee before you start writing do you listen to a certain piece of music that makes you think of oh it's time to write now are there things that you can ritualize to kick your brain into writing mode straight away which will cut down on the whole staring at the screen wishing for words and they're not coming yeah my stomach's growling very angrily and <laughs> i don't know if you can hear it um anyway uh i wanted to so so do you write fast per hour or do you spend many hours writing mm, that's interesting it depends on the project I think so if I because I people are going to hate me for saying this but I actually don't like writing as in I love outlining and I love having written and I like editing I actually hate the first draft I'm not I'm not a very good writer in that sense so anything that I can do to prep me beforehand is going to help if I sit down and I know exactly what I'm working on. So for example, in the morning while I'm getting ready, I'll be thinking about the next scene that I'm going to write. I'll be thinking about the dialogue that I need to put down. Yeah, then yeah, I can sit down and write really fast. I find that I can write nonfiction quite fast as well. So I, I think that one depends on project. I will go through phases where I'm binge writing and I write for like eight hours a day at the weekend and then or whatever and then I'll go through phases where I'm doing regular word counts but that I think that is project dependent and that will that will differ per project for me okay but what is fast because we are uh, we've got to quantify it we yeah we need let's quantify it yeah okay so fast for me you will see a lot of things like oh you're not fast unless you're writing 5,000 words per hour or you're not fast unless you know you're dictating 10k per hour is now, that even possible it, it is I've done it maybe once or twice you've dictated 10k in yeah. one hour 
fuck. Yeah, me. I mean, just the one hour. But you <laughs> you hear of these um you hear of these amazing things that writers do, and I think people then internalize that as oh, five thousand words an hour is fast. I tend to look at fast as what is fast for you. So if you're writing. I don't know, 500 words an hour now, and you can increase that productivity to a thousand words per hour. That will be fast for you. And we fall into this trap of comparing everything we do to other writers. So as Hello. a competition, yeah, I know, <laughs> I know, I know. Yeah. As having as having high competition in my strengths, I do it too. Yeah. And that's good for me because it, yeah. it actually fuels me. Yes. But there are writers who are not competitive and all it does is cause them angst because well, they like- can't do... 98 yeah like 98 percent of writers yeah, you know well, will yeah. not have competition <laughs> so like don't do this guys no but don't but also it. i think but that that what you've said is really really important and it's actually really it's like it's a fundamental because what what you compare to can either cause you pain or cause mm. or create you motivation so like yeah. it used to take me all day like when i quit my day job three and a half years ago <laughs> It would take me all day to write 2,000 words, like a full six to eight hours to write 2K. Now I can write 2K in an hour. I can spend three hours writing and be done and write 6,000 words in a day. That would have taken me three working days. So that is fucking fast for me. I'm never going to write 5,000 words an hour because one, I can't type that physically fast and two, (laughs) I can't dictate. So, you know, I'm probably going to tap out eventually at about 3000 words an hour i think i've had two nearly nearly two and a half in what at one point but i always think there's a little bit of wiggle room for improvement but i'm not going to get much faster than that so that that is almost but but look at the difference and you know yeah. look at what improving your process understanding how you write understanding mechanisms and tools that help you and the preparation that i personally need to do that other people don't do don't do but that is what is fast for me now that doesn't mean yeah. that's fast for somebody like chris fox who can dictate 5k an hour right no. so no, it really it, it really does depend and i think that's a really valuable thing that you've said um she says as the number one competition <laughs> <laughs> But, but don't do what we do. Yeah, don't don't listen to <laughs> us. <laughs> um, Okie dokie. You also talk about a who, what, and why in your book on writing fast. So can you explain what these mean and why they're important? Yeah, I can. So this is the whole mindset piece around being a quote-unquote productive author, whatever that means for you. Uh, so why is finding your why, which is the thing that will motivate you to write when it gets tough. In other words, why are you writing? So, World domination. <laughs> yeah well we know why you're writing that's no that's no secret well, I'm only kidding kind of sort of not really yeah uh, so I would say think about when you're happiest in terms of what makes you happy in your writing life what do you love to do in terms of um how can I put this like what's what sets you on fire that you can bring into your writing life and then what things or people have had the biggest impact on you and why. So when I did this, my why became really obvious, which is to entertain, educate and inspire people through writing. Um, That won't be the same for everyone. Like Sasha said, she's out for some villain shit that is, um, that's in the works, you know, it's, it's happening. It's happening for sure. And then your, what is the things that you could or should find out about before you start writing, if you want to, to make the process quicker um, so you're not trying to work these things out post-publishing. It would be the things like what genre are you going to write in? 
what your definition of success is. And that's really important because not everyone wants to be a full-time writer and that's absolutely fine. Uh, if you want to publish a book to say you've published a book and that's all you want, go for that. That is success to you. Great. And also working out then whether your chosen genre and your definition of success are compatible. And what I mean by that is if you want to win tons of literary awards, genre fiction probably isn't the place to start. If you want to make a shit ton of money, and I'm not saying literary authors can't do this, but you stand a better chance with genre fiction or um, commercial fiction, some people call it. So like that whole money versus awards thing or whatever it happens to be for you. And then your who is about asking yourself which parts of the writing process you're doing for you and which ones you're doing for the reader. So if you write to market, for example, like you'll be thinking, yeah, so you'll be thinking about the reader if you write to market the whole way through. You will be analysing your genres, your tropes. You'll be writing based on what you want the reader to experience um, in that market, and then you'll be editing for that as well. Whereas if you're writing for you and then marketing for the reader, you won't necessarily think about the reader until a little bit later in the process. So they're the things, they're, they're the, the why, what and who that I would suggest working out that will help you get into that right frame of mind before you you sit down to write anything, basically. Yeah, yeah, I love that. You gave me an idea for the book I'm writing as you're talking, um, which is great. So thanks for that. Thanks for coming on the show just to do that. No. <laughs> Um, and the other welcome. thing is, yeah, yes. um, the other thing is, I wanted to actually. I remembered something that I was going to say about one of the mm. points you mentioned earlier, which is when your outline goes, when, when your book or your story deviates from the outline. One of the things I do, other than re-outlining the bits going forward, is that I go into my manuscript and either find the chapter where the thing is wrong or I find the paragraph and I just create space and write, you need to change this and make it this in all block capital letters. And then I move on. I do not do the edits. I don't go back. I continue all the way through the story. But if I don't write down the thing, the note, the the thing that is wrong, I will forget it. Um, And then I end up with a clusterfucked manuscript at the end with no fucking idea what it was that past Sasha was trying to do. So, yeah, that's one thing that I do. And and it might be distracting for you to go and put it into the chapter. So keep it on a separate piece of paper um, because the temptation can be to go and then start editing. But for me, um, it's harder it is easier for me to just go and drop it into the section where I know it needs to be because I know that I will not edit when I go into that and look at it um, until I'm in the edits. Uh, and if I put it on a piece of paper, I won't remember where it was. <laughs> so yeah. I have to I have to put it in the in the correct place. Um, OK, so that, yeah, I just I just wanted to add that. So the, the only other question I wanted to ask then, really, is similar to one of the questions I asked earlier. But do you think there are any mistakes that an author can make when trying to write fast? Yeah, I mean, we've covered one of them, which is comparing yourself to others. Um, If that's not something that motivates you, if it is, then go ahead. But I think another thing that, or another mistake that writers make is trying to force themselves to follow a productivity process that just doesn't work for the stage of life that they're in. So if you are a writer who suffers with mental health issues, for example, some of these methods are never going or not never, I shouldn't speak in absolutes, but some of these methods are going to be really hard for you to stick to. Like a set daily word count of 2,500 words every single day when you're battling a mental health issue is not 
going to be feasible or might not be feasible for you. So I think what you need to do, a bit like with plotting really, is yes, absorb all the productivity techniques, learn about them, do productivity study, look at the Pomodoro method, all the all of those types of things that, that we come across. And then work out what is really going to work for you. And that will be a process of trial and error. Um, you might start doing one thing, think it's working, and then crash. And then you'll have to pivot to something else. And again, it's about finding your own unique process that works for you. So if you have kids, you're going to have less writing time than if you don't, for example. If you have, I don't know, this could be anything. If you have a physical health condition, so... I've got a condition called radiculopathy when where it flares up, I have huge pains in my arms, my neck, my back, and that will, you know, an, inevitably put me out for a good few weeks, which is why I need my process to be as refined as it can be in the times that I'm healthy. Um, so physical conditions, mental health conditions, all of those things, it's not, you're not going to find a one size fits all productivity process. And anyone that is trying to sell you that is talking out of their ass, quite frankly. Um, in my own book about writing fast, I do say that you will not hear a lot of you must do this from me. All I'm trying to do is present you with things that work for me and some other authors that I know, and then you can pick and choose the ones that the things that work for you. So yeah, the most common mistake because it leads to burnout and fatigue and all of these things is trying to fit your life into a productivity process that is never going to work for you. Mm. Yeah, and that and the only way to understand that and to figure it out is to write many, many, many books. Yeah. Because I am multiple books in. I think I'm writing my eighteenth, nineteenth, something like that. I don't even know. And I still am tweaking and refining my process. Like it's yeah. still like this book, like I just said, I've written all of my books out of order. This is this is the 18th, 19th book, and I'm writing it in a linear fashion. What the fuck? Like it just goes to show that actually experimentation is the only way, like, and to keep and retain that experimental mindset, because like you said, and in fact, look at the pandemic right? Mm, like exactly. that changed so many people's processes that maybe have been in place for years and years and years. And then all of a sudden you have your whole family at home all day, every day, and you can't do what you were doing. So, which is probably a horrible thing for somebody with really high consistency to hear. <laughs> yes. <laughs> but, <laughs> um, you mm. know, uh, it, if something stops working, then maybe there's something else that will work. And it's, yeah, just keeping that that ability to um, be, be, be flexible, says the girl with absolutely no ability to be flexible whatsoever. <laughs> <laughs> but no, I agree. And I think we spend so long searching for the, the perfect process. But I think the thing we come to learn is that there is no perfect process. I know yeah. um, but isn't Julia that, Scott from... Uns I was just going to say, isn't that an absolute shit to try and accept? Oh, yeah. No, I don't, I don't accept it. It's yeah. true. <laughs> but I do not accept it. But... Um, no, I think Julia Scott from the Unstoppable Authors podcast, she has this really great phrase, which is practice makes progress because there is mm. no such thing as perfect. And and that really resonated with me. So as much as I rebel against, yeah. and that's very apt considering, um, as much as I rebel against the fact that there is no perfect process, there really isn't one. And every project will be different. Every you know season of life will be different. And you've just got to adapt and pivot based on where you are right now. Amen. All right. This is the Rebel Author Podcast. So tell everyone about a time you unleashed your inner rebel. Oh man, where do I start? 
no. So most of my rebellions come from my school days because I was a real asshole at school. If I'm going to be, <laughs> if I'm going to be blunt. So I had a teacher that once told me that I would never amount to anything. <gasps> so did I. I had that they're too. B- bastards. They're such bastards. Absolutely. Um, what What was your teacher? <laughs> what like what What subjects did they teach? Science. Yeah. Motherfucker. So they said to me once, oh, I'm going to put you in for the foundation paper because there's no chance you'll get a C. I got that fucking double C. And I went, fuck you. Um, but no, this that is the teacher that said to me, you'll never amount to anything. So my mission in life, of course, then became to wind him up at every available opportunity because he had wound me up quite significantly. And one of the things that I remember is he once asked me to go and stand outside because of something that I'd done that I shouldn't, I can't actually remember what it was now. So he means stand outside the classroom, obviously. I took that one step further. <laughs> I love it. I love it before you even finish telling it. I took it one step further and actually went outside and sat in the middle of the playground just <laughs> on my own. He can he can see the playground from where from where he is. <laughs> anyway, at the end of the episode, he storms out and he's like, what are you doing out here? And I said, well, you told me to wait outside. So I, I'm waiting outside. <laughs> and this is not a very mature thing for like a 15-year-old to do, I know. <laughs> oh, it's deeply like, mature. I've had, a, <laughs> I've had enough of you. So I'm like, you told me to wait outside. I'm waiting outside. He goes, you know full well that I meant waiting outside the room. And I said, well, if that's what you wanted, you should have been a bit more specific. Oh, I bet that didn't go down very well. I absolutely it didn't. It. The detention was worth it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. So I don't know if I've ever told this story, but because your story is so similar to mine, I've got to share it. I um, I had a French teacher. I can't even remember her fucking name now, but she told me I wouldn't amount to anything. And back then oh. I wanted to be an actress. And um, I remember her telling me that it was so competitive um, of a world and I wasn't good enough and I would never get anywhere. And so I ought to pay attention to school. And I was like, oh, OK, that very, <laughs> isn't it, isn't it? That very fucking year I got an agent and I got onto a BBC as the lead, might I add. Yeah, you did. Oh, yeah, I did. I was the lead actress in a TV show. Um, I was like, I think I was like 15 when we were filming it. And I think it came out when I was 16. And oh my God, the fucking shit eating smug motherfucker grin that I had on my face when I walked Yes, well deserved. It's just like slow flat for me. It's like, like and she was like had no fucking idea and then like I of course didn't tell her but one of my classmates told her um what I'd done and she just was like a bit slack jawed and I swear to god it was like one of my favorite moments in life but like is that not the best thing ever when you get to prove somebody wrong it is because high competition oh yeah (laughs) (laughs) oh god how did we not even oh my god of course of course because I won I won against it oh my god this is why it's like one of my favorite moments oh dear me yeah wow the things I discovered talking to a fellow high competition person (laughs) (laughs) oh this has been an absolute delight would you like to tell everyone where they can find out more about you your books your services and anything else you'd like to add I sure can. So you can go to my website. That's swmiller.com. You'll find my books, my editing services there. 
If you want to pop and chat to me on social media, I'm at SW Miller Author on Instagram and TikTok. And I think by the time this airs, my new podcast with my co-host Cassie Newell will have dropped. And that is the Storytellers Face-Off podcast. When it, When is that launching? 1st of October. This will be out the week before because it's out next week. Oh, that's week. fine. Yeah. Well, then you'll be able to listen to this, wait a week, and then listen to ours. And if you want to head over, we answer questions from writers. It is storytellersfaceoff.com. And if you give me the link, I can retrospectively put it in the show notes as well. Awesome. Perfect. Thank you so much for your time today. And of course, a gigantic thank you to all of the show's listeners and all of the show's patrons. If you would like to get early access to all of the episodes, then you can do so by visiting patreon.com forward slash Sasha Black. I'm Sasha Black. You are listening to Shane Miller. And this was the Rebel Author Podcast. Next week, I'm going to be talking to Sarah Rosette all about how to write cosy mysteries. So join me next week for that. Don't forget to tune in and subscribe on your podcatcher. And when you have a moment, please leave a review.